Because the same sin that is in those defendants that commit those terrible acts is the same darkness in my heart. And I have experienced this grace and forgiveness. And so me now, that when I walk through this darkness in our community, I can't help but to worship God, who I know is gonna make all these things right one day. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Life Reframed. I'm Lauren Morgan. And I'm Rick Dunn. We have an exciting guest today. We do. I was thinking on the way over, like, we're about 130-something episodes into Life Reframed, and about halfway through, Lauren, we started um, started having stories, having just talking with people, hearing the story. And now when I know we're going to have one of those stories, I'm like, on the way in, I'm like, I can't wait for the conversation. I cannot wait to see, because every time something unfolds, it's just like, Man, God is a great storyteller. He is. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of funny because on the way over here, I thought, man, they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel now. <laughs> <laughs> and thus enters the voice of <laughs> Judge Steve Sword. There we go, right there. <laughs> Court's adjourned. <laughs> One-liner one in and out. Just it. make it, it meaningful. It. Um, okay, yes, we have Judge Steve Sword with us today. Hello. Hello. We're so happy to have you with us. We're not scraping the bottom of the barrel. We're actually <laughs> really excited to have you here. And... Your your story is really different and unique. I mean, everybody's are unique to them, but we've never had anyone on who has a background like you do. And this is going to be, I think, just really interesting and different from our usual guests. And we're excited about that. We are. And, I, you know, Steve, I've just had the privilege of I've known you since I came to Knoxville, mm-hmm. which is 25 years this month that I started on staff here. So I've thought about that relationship and and uh, I have learned from you. I have enjoyed uh, being a brother in Christ with you. I've enjoyed serving as an elder with you. And uh, I think one thing I'd want our folks to know is you kind of unfold your story and, and how you live that out in the judicial system and all the ways you have. It, you live that out in, in just who you are. And I, I, there are many places, Lauren, that where I would call Steve and say, can you just give me feedback on this or can you tell me the truth here because I'm not sure everybody's telling me the truth or or am I missing something or a couple of times I've come to your home and just sat and just can we just talk through this and uh, you've come to my home so this is a tremendous privilege for me to get to have your voice and your heart and your story shared with people the way you have so generously shared yourself with me in this church for 25 years so thank you well thanks I'm certainly honored to be here with you too and you know the story that I have that is any worth of telling is how God has intervened in my life, which is true for all of us, right? Always, that's the story. Always the story. Yeah. So why don't we start with just a little bit about who you are, your family, um, and then we kind of go into your background and where you're at now. Well, sure. I uh, grew up in a small town in West Virginia. I went to King College at the Times, King University now, where I met my wife, Alice. So we've been married uh, for 29 years now, and we have two girls. I have my oldest, Lucy, is at Mississippi State. And then I have uh, my youngest, Annalee. She uh, studies at West High School. Uh, and I've been a criminal court judge now for 11 years. And yesterday I started my third term, third eight-year term. Oh, that's so exciting. That right? Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Another Wonderful. election cycle that you have gone through and 
You did. You were unopposed. Is that right? I, I was. Well, there's actually two ways you can run for office. Okay. One is unopposed, and the other is scared. And so, <laughs> fortunately, I I was unopposed, and it was actually kind of fun for me. <laughs> that's sure, hilarious. Okay. Well, congratulations, still, and that's Thank you. that's really exciting, and it's wonderful for our whole community to yeah, have you in yes. again. Uh, okay, so you obviously you're a judge, so we know that you've been to law school. You were. A practicing attorney before you became a judge. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that period in your life? Well, so actually, uh, I wanted to be Indiana Jones growing oh. up. Uh, and then I got into college and uh, met my wife and started thinking, do I really want to live across the other side of the world uh, or live right here with the people I love? And so then I started looking at law school and I said, okay, God, if that's what you want me to do, I'll go to law school, but I am never going to do divorce work and I'm never going to do criminal law. And then for the first six months after I became a lawyer, I did nothing but divorce work. And <laughs> the last 27 years has been nothing but criminal law. So all the other areas of law you were willing to work in, you have not touched. Yeah, exactly right. And you know, God, I, I felt like I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I felt like whatever vocation I chose was going to be God's ministry. And so you think about what does a Christian lawyer look like? Well, they're going to go in, they're going to fight for freedom of religion issues, freedom of speech. And uh, when I got into law school, that was just not who I was. It was kind of not exciting to me. But you know what became exciting? criminal law and it became exciting because it was real people hmm. and so i had a wonderful professor um, and he just brought to life the people behind the names of the cases uh, and it was at that moment my this is in my first year of law school studying criminal law that i thought you know i don't see how i can avoid having a career that does not speak in the lives of people in some way and so that's how I ended up um, eventually ending in the district attorney's office as a prosecutor for 16 years. Uh, for that was nothing but child abuse uh, prosecutions. Uh, and then I ended up uh, being blessed to be able to become a judge. That's really awesome. So you, how did you get to Knoxville? Uh, University of Tennessee, like That's so many folks in okay. Knoxville. Yeah. I, I uh, had uh, an offer from NC State. Uh, uh, they were going to pay me to go to school there. To, for law school, right? No, actually for uh, to be an archaeologist and study library sciences. And so I thought, well, I could get paid to be a um, uh, an archaeologist or I could come to University of Tennessee and pay for an education. And uh, for some reason, God chose to bring me to Knoxville. Part of that probably has to do because I only wanted to be two and a half hours away from my fiance. <laughs> yeah, well, that has a lot to do with it, I'm sure. So, so those was there. A, so you said a, a professor was pivotal, mm -hmm. and I've had the privilege of just having conversations with you at kind of different junctions of your career, and it seems like that thread has been there. Of you, no, I'm not going to say it seems. I know for as long as I've known you and spoke and we spent time together, the thread has been there of like this is what God called me to do. That it wasn't simply a preference, although you've been passionate about it, but you, was that early on in law school or a little bit later or while you were a district attorney, like at some point you're like, this is so much more a calling than it is just my profession. Now, it was pretty early on um, when I started realizing that that was why I went to law school. Uh, I didn't know it at the time when I chose law school, but the reason I went is because I knew God could use me in some way to speak into people's lives. Uh, and I didn't feel called to be a pastor. Uh, and 
because I, my family would tell you I argued about everything. They thought law school would be a good option. Uh, and so it, it, it was blind on my part, but clearly it was the leading of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. through that whole thing. And even mm-hmm. when I when I got out of law school and I did a short term of, in a small office dealing with divorce work, uh, God opened the door to become a prosecutor. And my boss, when he hired me, he said, listen, I've got one position for you. I'm not going to leave you there long. This is not a, a, a place any prosecutors want to be, but I just need you there for a little while. So just give me a few months and I'll bring you up. And that was juvenile court. And so I was went to juvenile court to be there for six months to a year. And then I stayed there for nine years because God was speaking to me and taught me how to not only be a lawyer, but prepared me to be a judge by bringing these kids in front of me in a system that although it's an adversarial system is really designed with the purpose to treat, train and rehabilitate. And that mm. was fundamental in how God shaped my view of the justice system. Those nine years that I spent in juvenile court, which is kind of like being cast into Siberia if you're a prosecutor. But for me, <laughs> it's, it's where God trained me for what uh-huh. he wanted me to do. That that's, gets repeated in a lot of the stories that, yeah. that we hear and tell, doesn't it? That you're like, well, this is really not a part of the plan and yet it forms such a powerful part of who you are. It does. And I, so I've spent more time than I ever thought I would in juvenile court Mm -hmm. having uh, been a foster family. And so having to show up and go to juvenile court, which I thought juvenile court was just like kids who had gotten arrested and broken the law or whatever, but there's a lot of variety that you see there. And I assume, I know you mentioned prosecuting like child abuse cases and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. when you were at there is that part of what you did you did that and then do you also see like you're talking about the the rehabilitation and that sort of thing you also see teenagers and the whole gamut is that right exactly and juvenile court basically has two sides to it and you have the delinquent side which is what you generally think of uh, kids yeah. getting in trouble uh, you also have the social services where kids who are dependent neglect mm-hmm. uh, and so they work those two sides work really hand in hand because the kids who are getting in trouble almost always have those same social services needs uh, and that's when I started encountering uh, the fatherlessness that I see in our community I could probably tell you I think I was somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 cases that are prosecuted of delinquent acts in those nine years and I would imagine there's probably less than 500 fathers that ever showed up in court mm-hmm. for their kids. Very few of those kids had any father figure in their lives. And the ones that did usually were poor father figures. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. really, I would be shocked if I hadn't like seen, you know, experienced it myself in foster care, like what that's like. But um, not from the same perspective you have, but just going into the court and seeing and waiting for people to show up and them not showing up mm-hmm. and um, just the lack of, yeah, the father figures there. So that sounds like it was a really shaping, uh, you, you did say it was a shaping time for you. It sounds like that fatherlessness really grabbed hold of your heart then. And how do you translate that now into being a judge you know it's interesting uh as a prosecutor you actually have a lot of authority in the decisions that you make about how to handle a case okay as a judge 
you don't have that privilege. You don't know the cases as well. You're stepped back and you're required to be a neutral and detached magistrate. And so you have to make uh, decisions based upon the law and the facts of that particular case. Uh, and so as a judge, uh, if you're a good judge, you should not come up there to be an advocate. However, every decision that I make affects someone's life. And I know that I'm keenly aware of that. Uh, and so when I come into a case uh, and I'm dealing uh, well, let's say somebody who's before me on a violation of probation because they've tested positive for a drug screen for like the third or fourth time. When I'm looking at that case, I'm thinking, well, what does the law dictate? Uh, in that particular case, it gives me a lot of discretion. And so then I look, what is best for the community? What is best for that person and what uh, achieves justice? And so one of the things that we're seeing in our system now, not only in Knox County or and Tennessee, but our entire country, is there's this massive emphasis on treatment for drug and mental health issues in the criminal justice system. It's, a, it's really the primary uh, function that we have right now is to try to uh, get folks help for addiction issues. And so uh, juvenile court is very formative in me in understanding that you have to look at the underlying causes and try to address those. That's really interesting. So, okay, hearing you talk about that, it makes me want to know more about, like, what is your day-to-day life like as a judge like what do you if some somebody say myself or a listener was like what does a judge do i thought you were still gonna say we're ever to come before you i, was, <laughs> oh. I did not know where you were taking that Laura. <laughs> no i wouldn't what is it like like what are the i mean i listen i i've watched my fair share of law and order i have been on a marathon lately i see okay. you this is a very timely conversation <laughs> and, uh, I can tell. Been, yeah uh been binging that this week and uh you know it's old and familiar it's yeah, like okay. i didn't have to t- risk a new show to know whether i'd like it or not um so is it like that is it like what we see on tv is it different like what is your what is your job like well, the short answer to that is no. <laughs> it's not like I, that's what everyone always tells me. That's not actually how it is. But I will say this. Law and order probably gets it closer than most do. Now, I am actually in criminal court. And so most criminal offenses start off in Sessions Court. In Sessions Court, you're brought before a judge with a warrant. Uh, and they have limited jurisdiction. Uh, So they can resolve uh, misdemeanor cases. Anything that's a felony has to come up to the grand jury, and they come out to me. So I'm the trial-level judge. So you think about Judge Ito in the O.J. Simpson case. That's kind of what I do. I do jury trials. And so everything from DUIs to to first-degree death penalty cases. Uh, And so on a daily basis, I'm dealing with – Anything from, you know, simple shoplifting, uh, that's kind of rare in criminal court. But we get a lot of thefts, folks who are serious drug addicts, uh, and unfortunately a lot of uh, violent crimes, um, sexual abuse of children, rapes of adults, and and murder. And so that's – every week I'm dealing with those cases to some degree. Uh, And we also deal with a lot of folks who are on probation and just can't stay clean. As I said – uh, the substance abuse uh, issues are really driving so much of the criminal justice system right now. So I'm, I'm constantly working, get people into treatment uh, and to uh, find mental health resources for them as well, too. And so I'm on the bench pretty much five days a week, either with a jury in there trying a case or with the defendants coming before me litigating, trying to figure out how to point them in the right direction. You know, Lauren, I've had experiences where I'll come into an elder meeting. We have elder meetings once a month. And Maybe it's been a hard day. Maybe got a little email that wasn't pleasant or something or whatever, and I'll kind of feel a little sorry for myself. And then 
Steve will walk in and he say, hey, I'm sorry I'm late. I'm trying this first degree murder case. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, my day wasn't so bad. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. Um, but when you sent us an email, Steve, like, okay, I know, I think this, isn't this true for you, Lauren, that when you hear like day after day after day, that's what you deal with and you walk into. I think most of us just feel that's so weighty and so hard. But I know it just in our little email thread that we have your response to Steve when he talked about this was it sounded very hopeful. Yeah, I love the way. Yeah, so talk to our little listeners in on about it. Yeah, on yeah. how you talked about that with us. I mean, the most common question I get all the time is is how do you deal with what you see every day? And that was especially true when I was uh, dealing with child abuse cases in the district attorney's office. I back then I spent four years doing nothing but talking to children about being sexually abused and shaken baby cases. Uh, you know, I held a baby who I knew was going to die from severe abuse in my arms a month before she died, ended up being one of my last victims uh, as a prosecutor. And so I was really on the front lines then. I remember you know, that season. Yeah. And so, and I still see it now, you know, every day I'm, I'm hearing the worst of humanity and, you know, you read stuff in the news uh, and I can tell you the things that I see on a daily basis are worse than what you can imagine. It's the worst sin, the most egregious acts. And, and there's no point in really rehashing those here, but just know that as dark as you think it is, it's even darker. Mm -hmm. And so when people ask me that question, how do you deal with that? Uh, I used to say, well, you know, it's, it's just God's grace that enables me to do it. He's called me to do it, so he's equipped me to do it. And then as I've matured, uh, particularly in the last few years as a judge, it's really changed from just this idea of God's equipped me to be able to handle it, to do it, but actually it's turned into an act of worship. Because if, if you look at Romans 520, hey, Greg Pinkner, I know you're enjoying this part. <laughs> <laughs> he loves it when we shout out to him. I promise you he loves it. <laughs> well, Paul has been speaking about the law and how the law came to reveal to us the darkness of that sin. Uh, and the Romans 520, the last part says, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And so when I'm sitting in court and I'm hearing this story about somebody that killed and chopped up their victims and uh, did horrible things uh, sexually to another human being, my heart now goes to God and says, wow, I know the truth is that the grace of God is sufficient to provide forgiveness and healing, not only for those victims' families, but for that defendant. Hmm. And then, wow, when you think about it from those terms, your heart all of a sudden starts, stops dwelling on the darkness, but worships God for how wonderful and how great his grace is. Because the same sin that is in those defendants that commit those terrible acts is the same darkness in my heart. And I have experienced his grace and forgiveness. And so me now, that when I walk through this darkness in our community, I can't help but to worship God, who I know is going to make all these things right one day. And my imperfect little acts of justice will be made perfect when he brings complete justice to us. It's so powerful. It is. It's so hopeful, too. And it it's just such a different perspective, which is kind of what I was hinting at earlier and saying we've really never had anybody on who, obviously, who's in your position. But I think just instead of even just like, you're saying just saying I'm I'm equipped like God has equipped me for this like it's just so much more 
beyond that. Like that's a picture that I've really never heard spelled out before the way you just did that. And I think that's such a gift for us to be able to hear you. Mm -hmm. You know, another aspect of it that I know with you, so there's, there's the justice part of it and the, the, um, you used a word, uh, magistrate. Neutral and detached magistrate. Okay. Never heard that before. I like that. All right. <laughs> the neutral detached magistrate. Are it means you, I'm fair. I, yeah. I don't, okay. I don't know if I've used that in a sentence, but I like it. So, um, as that person, you're saying God's reframed your perspective on it's, I'm worshiping his, his goodness, grace. I'm also mitigating, meeting out justice. Mm-hmm. And then there's this compassion I know that's in you too. Mm-hmm. Compassion for the victims and compassion even for the person and how they got to that place because we're all sinners. Can you talk about how that works its way through all this for you, that you're both justice and worship of God and compassion, all those things are happening at once. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting uh, uh, struggle that you have to wrestle with. But the first thing you have to think of as a judge, the oath I took yesterday promises that I am going to uphold the Constitution, United States of America and the Constitution of Tennessee. And uh, as a believer, I know that God has established the authority. You read Romans 13. Hey, Greg Pinkner. And it, <laughs> don't it, give him too many <laughs> shout outs. It makes my job harder. Oh, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> Someone some else is bringing them down somewhere <laughs> yeah, else. Well, that's true. Let's go out. <laughs> God has established authority to demonstrate justice because he is a God of grace and mercy, but he is also a just God. Mm-hmm. And so if I sat up there on the bench and just said, you know what, I, I have compassion for you, I forgive you. Well, that wouldn't be just. That wouldn't be fair to the victims of that crime. It wouldn't be fair to our community. And it really wouldn't be fair to that defendant who really deserves to feel the consequences of their actions. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I go into it with that in mind first. I am there to do justice. Uh, now, there are times where, as I said, you know, the courts are given a lot of discretion. You have to use your wisdom to figure out is the extension of mercy and grace in this situation, does it accomplish justice? If it doesn't, then you don't extend it. But if you can still accomplish justice and address an underlying problem and, and bring mercy to somebody, we're better off as a community. I tell my offenders all the time who are drug addicts, which is really most of them, if you relapse and you use fentanyl this weekend or cocaine or whatever it is, don't lie. Don't run from it. I will never send you to the penitentiary for a dirty drug screen. Uh, as long as you want help, I will help you get help. You mm-hmm. might sit in jail until we can get you cleaned out and find another residential treatment place for you, but I'll never send you to the penitentiary. And I know the other judges across the state share that. And that's one of the misconceptions that I think a lot of people have of our criminal justice system is that we're filling up the prisons with people who are, you know, in possession of marijuana and, and are drug addicts. You know, a lot of the folks that are in prison are drug addicts, but they're not going because they're testing positive on their drug screens. We spend millions of dollars every year just in Knox County on treatment resources for for individuals uh, who have addiction issues. Uh, And it's a wonderful thing to be a part of, to be able to see how the system, uh, we fail a lot, it's not perfect. But man, there are some good people in the criminal justice system that are there to help the folks who are struggling with many different issues. Yeah, that's just not something that's a lot of press. So I'm really glad you shared that. You know, one other thing while we're on this, you're talking about justice, um, to the degree that you feel comfortable talking about this, you were in the middle of just 
doing your job and being who you are and someone in another place decided to publicly attack you and spread mm. social media lies and um you know the time lord it became national it was i mean you were being attacked and uh in such an unjust manner and i would just imagine that a man whose whose life or a woman whose life is committed and surrendered to stewarding justice to have so much injustice on you what what how did god use that season of your life because yeah. i mean i was you know we talked about mm-hmm. it we were very aware uh it it, it it was a a dark um dirty tactic on you that was twisting the truth but you couldn't just defend yourself or it just sounded the mm-hmm. media turned it into well there you know there's another corrupt judge and mm-hmm. what in the world did god do with that well, he certainly reframed that one. <laughs> uh, just a little background. It, it's a case that is still active. In fact, I'm in the middle of writing an opinion um, that uh, is preparing it for the appellate level. So, But I can comment what I said publicly. And it was, it was a child sex abuse case, which is kind of ironic that this is the type of case that I've been criticized on because I've filled up entire wings of prisons with child abusers. And my reputation is I'm very harsh in my sentencing. But we tried this case um, and the defendant was convicted, and I believe rightfully so. And when it came to sentencing, the state asked for an incredibly high sentence that I really don't think um, uh, was justified under the law uh, because of the facts of that particular case and the, the way the law stood at the time the offenses occurred, I gave him uh, what I felt like was a fair sentence. And in the process, a judge can't just say, here's what I think the person deserves. There are certain legal uh, factors that you have to consider and you have to rule on those factors. And one of those is mitigation. And so the defense can always argue, this is why they should get a lower sentence. And this particular defendant had uh, worked in a church as a pastor had worked with a lot of foster kids and had a great reputation in the community, never even had a speeding ticket, no other uh, allegations of abuse on his part. And he had tons and tons of people that came in talked about, here's how much he helped me. And so in my sentencing, I had to address that mitigation. I'm required to under the law. And I said, yes, it is true. He's, hel- he's helped all these other folks as a pastor. And then I went on to say, but that does not mitigate um, the acts that he did. And so instead of the minimum three-year sentence where he'd be out of jail in one, I gave him 12 where he'd have to serve at least nine before he could get out. Which, as you explained to me, was actually the strictest legal thing you could do, given the law that you were uh, uh, stewarding. Right. right. And, and and to be fair to both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Uh, the reporter who was in the courtroom that day was not one who was familiar with the law. He's, he doesn't normally cover the courtrooms. And he sort of focused on my comment that he was a pastor and helped folks. And so somebody out there uh, in another state sees that and on Pathios.com used that as an opportunity to call me a pedophile judge. And that the only reason I gave him a sentence of 12 years instead of the 72 that the state was asking for, which no way I could have done that. Uh, was because he was a pastor. And so it became an attack on me uh, as a judge and as a believer. And it just, as you said, it went viral. And so to this day, I still get uh, packages in the mail that have to be um, x-rayed. And my secretary told me the other day, so yeah, you know, we still get calls on that and that nobody will leave their message. Than their voicemails. And, sure. and so I went through wow. really a couple of weeks and you and I talked about it. It was very hard. It was so dark because mm-hmm. of all this darkness descending on you with 
unjustly with nothing you could do to mm-hmm. speak into it. Yeah, and I, and I felt, you know, I'm, I'm having to take steps to make sure my, my kids are protected mm-hmm. and nobody knows where we had to leave town for several days. Uh, and I was really kind of bitter. And I talked to you about it. I remember you could sense my anger because I was hurt because Fellowship had to take my name down off of the website. Uh, I had some videos up there because we were getting calls. King University, where I'm a trustee, they were getting calls. I do want to say at no point did we question your integrity or who mm-hmm. you are, but it was that it was that dark and desperate of a time, Lauren, mm-hmm. that we had to kind of everything had to be pulled in to figure out what to do next, right? Yeah, exactly. And I understood it, but I was still wow. angry Rightly of the situation so. was. Yeah. Rightly so. And so I'm thinking, all right, God, defend me in this. And I thought, all right, here it comes. He is going to say, you've got nothing to defend. You're a righteous man. And he said, you know what? I'll take care of that. And you don't believe these things, and I don't either. But you know what? You are awful easy to believe all the good things people say about you. Mm. How great a judge Judge Sword is. How fair he is to victims and defendants. How smart he is. How wise he is. Why do you believe those things? Uh, Because your righteous deeds are filthy rags to me. And wow, he reframed the heck out of that one for me. And so, you know, I can't sit here and tell you it, it, it doesn't hurt when I get criticism, but God did change my heart yeah, uh, yeah. tremendously. And so now the criticism means about the same as the compliments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I wow. would describe it as, you know, Lauren, if I could put words around it is, it is as if, as if God shook you and, you know, and sifted you. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it came out with a sense of, of a peace inside that was greater than whatever was coming at you. And, and in the end, by God's grace, there was someone who stepped forward and, and named it for what it was and really mm-hmm. was a huge part, I think, in our community of helping kind of break that. But uh, I sensed in you of like a a resolve to just be at peace with God and who you are and to walk it out and let him do what he's going mm-hmm. to do. They're actually, the Tennessee uh, judicial motto is a Latin phrase that I won't butcher, but it basically translates to uh, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. And so that's made me such a better judge to realize, you know what? I cannot worry about the criticisms I'm going to receive. I need to do justice as the law dictates. Uh, and man, that is so freeing. It to is. Know. Whatever the consequences are, God will take care of it. It's just powerful. Yeah, so oh, so powerful, and it, just to be in that position where you can't defend yourself, like you can't be like, "Hey, yeah, let me tell you guys all mm-hmm. the things that mm-hmm. are going on here." You just have to sit there and take it. That's interesting, and I thought it was interesting how you said the compliments now are about the same as the criticism. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting shift in mindset. Yeah, you have to be careful as a judge. <laughs> I remember uh, when I first got appointed. Uh, pretty high powerful attorney co- contacted me and said, Hey, I got tickets to the UT Kentucky basketball game court size. You want to go? I was like, yeah, that's great. And then I realized, Oh, I'm no longer Steve sword. The enemy on the other side is a prosecutor. I'm now the judge who's getting ready to make decisions in your cases. And so it's funny. You really have to be careful. Um, yeah. Every relationship you have as a judge, uh, you don't have to be, a um, uh, you know, cynical about things, but you do have to be careful because we are called uh, to set aside a lot of our rights and a lot of our privileges because we do need to remain uh, that neutral and detached magistrate. Yeah. What, what do people not understand? You you said a while ago, uh, just you were talking about, hey, we're doing a lot more mm. for these 
folks dealing with drug issues, then it gets attention. What do you think are misconceptions people have in general about, and I'm not mm-hmm. talking about political things, but mm-hmm. just in general, what are some misconceptions or things like if you lived where I live, you would see that the justice system or or the way the Constitution works, just, just anything that like the lay person like Lauren mm-hmm. and I just would like, oh, I didn't realize that the way you do. You know, it, it's hard to avoid the political uh, world these days because it has invaded the space of the judiciary. Uh, but what I would say is, particularly in Knox County, you should be very proud of the criminal justice system that you have, from our police officers to our probation officers to the lawyers and the judges. We have an incredibly um, efficient system, but an incredibly fair system. And every day I see prosecutors in my court who have a case that they could put in front of a jury and it'd be like shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, But instead of going for the maximum sentence and the maximum punishment, they cut a deal because they know the defendant has issues that need to be addressed. Uh, And so our DA's office does a great job of sifting through, you know, what what cases really need to be um, pushed to the max and have people taken off the streets to protect the community and which ones are folks who, who need assistance. And that's a lot of them. And mm-hmm. so they work great. Our, our public defender's office, they have a whole army of social workers that they bring in and they start working with their clients, not just on their legal issues, but on their mental health issues, on their housing issues, on their medical issues. And they really surround it. The Knox County Sheriff's Office is the largest mental health provider in our community. I have uh, no idea. They mm-hmm. are. And, you know, because there's so few places where we have a lot of these folks to go. And so they go, they get arrested, obviously, on disorderly conduct, public intoxication. And while they're there, they get somebody like Samantha Monday, who comes in and and figures out how do we get Cherokee involved? How do we get Helen Ross McNabb? What medications do they need? And so... Most of the folks leaving Knox County Sheriff's uh, detention facility are leaving in a better spot than when they came in. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so and the other thing I would say is we get it right most of the time. Uh, And I say that not because Judge Steve Sword and Judge Green and Judge Hickson are really wise judges. I say that because the jury system is so effective to bring in 12 people from our community uh, to look at a case and bring their collective wisdom to that. It's amazing uh, how often I'm sitting back as as I, I have the role as a 13th juror, and I think, boy, I maybe didn't wouldn't have gotten there the way the jury got there, but I think they ended up at the fair and just result in this case. And so I, I think that people should be incredibly proud from the police all the way up uh, to the appellate judges that Mm. we have in our state. Mm. Well, that's really encouraging because I think a lot of what we hear and sometimes it feels like is broken systems, broken systems. And so that's encouraging to me to hear that positive side of how things are working well. And I know, you know, by having convention having been through the foster care system as a foster family it's super easy to be like here are all the holes in the system and the cracks and things that need fixing um but i love that your perspective is and and i think it's in everything you've talked about today your perspective is not and i don't doubt that you look at holes and cracks and want to make those better i don't doubt that at all but that you see the the positives and things too, that you see the good in things that you see the hope. And even I was thinking earlier when you were talking about 
uh, not like, how do you do this hard job every day? And uh, that is not the question that would come to my mind. I think probably because I work with like death every day. And so a lot of people don't understand how I could do that, but I do. So I could understand how a person could work in something hard. But I think the greater challenge in my mind, just for me as a person, is not becoming like cynical or just or hardened Calloused, to it. Like Callous. Yes, yeah. that's mm-hmm. exactly right. That's a great point. So Lauren. I think it's it can be hard to remain in what you're doing, but still be so like tender hearted to it and like see the good things and the wonderful things to encourage and build up and continue doing. And then just the way that you spoke about everything, I could see how you could just do the job and, you know, go home and do your life and do the job all over again the next day. Although I'm sure you probably don't always get to leave your work at work. (laughs) Um, But just that you're still so engaged in it Mm. and open to it. I think that's a really amazing thing about you. You know, I, I, when you were talking about that, Lauren, I was just thinking about all of my friends that I know struggle with substance abuse issues. The, the law field is rife with people who struggle uh, with addiction issues. Actually, how I ended up becoming a judge is the judge before me uh, had a substance abuse issue uh, and ended up having to resign, and, and I ended up getting appointed. Uh, and I look at those folks and think, well, what's, what's the difference? Why do I come into work every day in the same dark environment and yet feel God's presence uh, and, and, and can leave there worshiping at the end of the day. And it's certainly nothing that I have done. It's not that I have gained any wisdom. It's just simply that uh, the Holy Spirit uh, has enabled me to do it. Uh, and I think that's so much we've been talking about on the elder board, uh, the importance of the posture of the heart, because you can do spiritual discipline A and dis- spiritual discipline B, and doesn't necessarily going to mean you're going to get spiritual growth C. It is all the posture of the heart. You have to yield your heart to the Father's working. And so that's really what I try to do every day is, you know, when I go into this, I'm not thinking, well, what would God have me do? I'm going in there thinking, God, I'm yielding to you. Use me as your vessel. And then, you know, what does the law say? What does my oath require me to do as that uh, neutral and detached magistrate? Uh, and so he's been faithful throughout the course of a lot of really dark times. Yeah. I feel like this is, I'm like, should I say this or not? Because I don't want it to be like taken out of context and make it sound like you're not a neutral and detached magistrate. Cause I, I absolutely believe that you are on the bench, but your heart is not detached from what you do. That's I understand great. you have to be detached from having, you know, any sort of bias or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, you as a person are certainly not detached in what you do. No. And when I uh, s- sentence somebody in the murder case, uh, the first thing I always do, there's a lot of findings that I have to make on the record. So the appellate court can know exactly how I ended up the sentence I ended up. I always start those by looking at the victim's family and telling them um, what I'm getting ready to say is going to sound cold and calculating because it is, because the law requires me to look at this dispassionately. But as a human being, I want you to know that you have my sympathy and my heart breaks for you. And that is sincere when I say that. But then I turn that off. And then I start talking about the enhancement factors, mitigation factors, and the facts of this particular case to reach, because that is 
of what God's justice requires mm-hmm. and what the law requires. And yet, um, I'm still, like you said, that human being in there. And so it's, it can be a bit of a dichotomy where you have to still allow that to affect you as a person and not be a robot, but you have to be able to um, continue to be neutral and detached throughout everything. Yeah. Well, and that's good. That's, we need that. We need yes. well, genuinely real people. I'm so glad you brought that up, Lauren, because I'm going to try to pull a thread. And if I don't get it right, Steve, just like, well, that's like, not exactly right. So, but when you said that, Lauren, it really reminded me of a conversation I'd had with you. And I'm going to put it in just the broadest context possible. A little bit of us talking about why you were in the courtroom and why, given that there are lots of other options out there, you stay in the courtroom, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of which would be advancement and some of which mm-hmm. would be honorable advancement. You know, all this, mm-hmm. there's all these factors out there, right? And and just kind of generically say those there have been availabilities to you. Mm-hmm. And But you shared with me, and it really reflected exactly what you said, Lauren. Uh, you shared with me just like, that moment right there where you are able to bring grace and truth, the presence of Jesus in you and in the darkness, that that's what you feel like. That's why you're there and that's why mm-hmm. you stay and that's why you that's what you feel called to that moment right there. Mm-hmm. It goes back to law school, right? When I felt like God is calling me to deal with real people. Yes. You know, I don't want to be in some ivory tower and dealing with these esoteric legal issues, which is important. You know, we important. need to have those people. But that's not what's in your heart, no. to Lauren's point. And, you know, recently um, two of the Court of Criminal Appeals judges uh, retired in East Tennessee, and so you have three from each grand division. And so two openings came out that rarely come, come open. And so a lot of people uh, contacted me, people who, you know, were pretty much some authorities in in those areas and encouraging me to consider applying to go to the appellate level. And and can I say, as mm-hmm. you described to me, and I wouldn't have known this, it was that's advancement in mm-hmm. in the field, and it also opens potential doors for even more advance. Like it, it really sure. is the career building path, mm-hmm. and you kind of hit a junction of am I at this season at least? Am I not going to do that? Am I going to mm-hmm. do that? Yeah, and you know, in, in my early fifties. This would be the time to do it. Uh, governors like young judges, and if you ever want to advance beyond that first appellate level to the Supreme Court, then you need to have some years in as mm-hmm. an appellate judge. And so everything on paper looked like it was right for me to apply. Um, and I wrestled and wrestled, and I just couldn't have a piece about it. And you and I talked about it a lot, and I still felt like I couldn't just give it up. Like, why am well, I feel like I should keep doing what I'm doing, but why can't I give up this opportunity? And and no offense to you, but I was speaking to, after our conversation, I called another friend uh, who I used to practice law with in the district attorney's office, and she and I spent an hour on the phone. Uh, and I remember I was pacing back and forth in my mm. bedroom talking to her, and she said, well, well what is it? Why, why are you so interested in the CCA when you you're so good at the job you do now and you love it so much. And it hit me, I said, because I want everybody to know that I'm one of the best judges in East Tennessee. And she goes, Steve, that is your flesh. And from that moment on, I realized, oh, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. The only reason I'm interested in that is because it's the next rung on the ladder, it's the next step. 
But that's not what God's calling me to do. And and the worship that I feel when I come out of this horrible case and and I've hopefully said something to bring comfort to a family, um, I would I've missed that. I'd miss the stories that that I encounter uh, every day on real people in their real lives. Uh, and so I, who knows where God's gonna yeah. gonna lead me in the future? Yeah. Maybe maybe be somewhere else. But right now, I. I I love being among people. And I love it that, well, God may have, you may surprise you around any corner, but at least in that moment, you, through that conversation with this friend and her just naming that, you're able to see in this, I think, Lauren, all of our, I can, you can, all of our listeners can have that recognition of, I'm going to be most engaged in my life and worship by being where I'm called to be versus maybe where other people might think I should be, or even I might think I should. There's nothing out there that I'm going to chase that is somehow going to bring me what's happening right now in being able to come out of that in worship. Mm. And that, to me, is the freedom to just be where you are and wherever God calls you. And it's that same freedom that allows me to reject the criticisms and the compliments that people give me, because no longer am I seeking my approval from man. Uh, it doesn't matter if somebody thinks that, yeah, he should have gone up to the CCA. He would have been a better judge there. Or if they think, oh, he's the best trial judge in Knox County. The only thing that matters is, is am I doing what God's calling me to do right now? Am I walking faithfully on a daily basis in that? Yeah. So good. Okay. So as we wrap up here, just a couple questions. What is your favorite thing about your job? And what is like the hardest thing about it? <laughs> Well, this is going to kind of sound flippant, but it really is true. And I tell people all the time, uh, I ask the jurors if they ever need a break. And when I need a break, I just say, okay, folks, one of the greatest things about being a judge is I can take a recess any time I want to. And so it is wonderful <laughs> to have that authority. <laughs> to be in charge. Yeah. To be Listen, in charge. That's is not a great flippant. I love yeah. that. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and actually, that's probably uh, true. But being able to speak into people's lives yeah. is really such a blessing. Uh, and it's also an a tremendous responsibility because the decisions that I'm making will affect people's lives, both sides of the podium, the defendants as well as victims for the rest of their lives and maybe for generations. And that's an incredible responsibility. Uh, and so that's sort of the flip side of the same coin is you coin. You have that same pressure to realize, wow, I can really do damage here or I can really uh, do justice. Uh, and so the same thing that brings me joy is the same thing that caused me a lot of anxiety. Wow. That's so good. You're so good. Well, thank you for being here with us today. It has been so good to hear your story and hear your perspective on everything. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here and being a part of fellowship has spoken into my lives in so many different ways. Love it. Well, uh, Knoxville is, I, I love, Knoxville with my whole heart. I think it's a very special place and our community is better for having you doing what you do here. So thank you for how you serve us. We are so, we're so blessed to have you. We them. are. I just uh, keep running through my head, Micah 6, 8, hmm. what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. And I feel like I've been listening to that story, Lauren, for mm -hmm. the last few minutes. That's what I hear, hmm. what God's birthed in your heart. So I'm just so yeah. thankful. And, and again, I, what you here and who Steve is, Lauren, is also part of my life. And thank you for the ways you've just offered yourself to me so many times. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I love our relationship. Me as well. 
And uh, just a little shout out to both of you guys here. Uh, our listeners don't know that y'all have sat in this tiny recording room with me for the last hour. Uh, and I smell like a skunk because my dog got skunk <laughs> this morning and brought it in my house. So y'all have had to sit in here and endure that. And I know I smell. I can smell myself. So. Well, as a criminal court judge, <laughs> I was thinking maybe the skunk smell was maybe from skunk weed, but I, we won't go there. <laughs> uh, and that will be episode two with Steve Sword as Lauren invites us into her journey. We would have had a really different podcast episode, I feel like, if that had been the case. But Oh, that's funny. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for being here. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Life Reframed. We want to thank our team because we could not do this podcast without them. To Sam Scott, who edits and produces, sometimes things don't sound as smooth as they do when you're listening, and that is thanks to Sam. To Laura Benner, who helps us communicate, organize, and schedule things. And to Alex Diefenderfer, who oversees communications and helps with the vision. And to our listeners, thank you for being here and listening to us. We appreciate your feedback, love hearing from you all, and are just so thankful that you continue to show up and listen each week. And anybody who feels so inclined, we would love to ask for a five-star rating. It helps in the podcast players, and we love to hear the feedback from you as well. Thanks for being here, everybody. 